Hello everyone! Welcome to the Gems Podcast. I am so glad you all are here. Hello everyone! Today we are so excited and lucky to be joined by Dr. Heather Carroll, who is a neurophysiologist. Heather, would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, so, as you mentioned, I am a neurophysiologist, and I currently live in Maryland. Um, I'm very passionate about teaching math and sciences, and a few of my favorite hobbies include playing sports. I love to sing. I love to eat foods from you know, different countries. Uh, for the past 10 years, I have served as a tutor and a mentor for students in the D.C. area, and I also love to, um, you know, really encourage and inspire individuals who are in the school setting to try to pursue a career in STEM, because that is specifically the area that I'm in, but also just to make sure that you're reaching, trying to reach whatever goal that you've set for yourself. That's a real um, strong interest of mine. Awesome. So where are you from and how did you end up in Maryland? Okay. So I'm actually originally from Maryland, but I spent the majority of my childhood growing up in Ohio, a small suburb of Cincinnati, which is called Mason, Ohio. So I graduated from high school, and I ended up moving to um, Alabama for a short little bit where I went to undergraduate schooling at a college um, called Oakwood. It's a private school, and I stayed there for a couple of years, and I transferred back to Cincinnati, and I graduated from the University of Cincinnati with my Bachelor's of Science in Biology. And after I uh, graduated from the University of Cincinnati, I ended up moving back to the DMV area, and I started attending Howard University for my doctoral program, which is where I received my PhD. And what drew you to pursuing a PhD and gaining a higher level of education? Sure. Okay, so... I forgot to mention, so I think you mentioned earlier, my technical title is a neurophysiologist. So my PhD is in neurophysiology, um, but a, like a nickname that I sometimes like to use is that I'm like a brain scientist or a brain researcher. So I'm studying how the brain functions and how it works. And one of my biggest influences uh, for attending Howard is the fact that my dad actually attended Howard for his PhD. And we both received our degree from the exact same physiology department. So some of the teachers that he had, like, literally 30 years before I entered the program were still there and teaching me. Um, and another influence that happened when I was about in the fourth grade, I witnessed one of my favorite aunts pass away from colon cancer. And that was a really devastating experience for me. And it was also very influential because I remember thinking to myself, okay, whatever career that I go into, I definitely want to make sure that I'm focused on helping the lives of sick patients and doing what I can to help them get better. Absolutely. So did your dad um, move here from south to the States from South America to attend a university? Was that his plan? So my parents 
so both of my parents happen to be from Guyana, South America, and they moved to the States around uh, 18 years old, and it was partially for schooling, um, although my parents have gone to, like, schools in different countries such as Trinidad. But ultimately, they knew that the life that they wanted their future children, which is myself and my sisters, to have would probably uh, give us the most opportunities if we were, you know, born here in the States. So for me, being a first-generation-born North American, my parents always stressed the importance of having a good education, making that a priority, making sure that we worked our hardest so that in the future we would have, you know, endless opportunities available to us. Yes. So um, you described a experience in the third grade that you had um, that made you realize that you wanted to pursue STEM on top of those influences that you had just mentioned. So can you just tell us a little bit about that? Yeah. So I would say I, I mentioned like my aunt passing away. She wasn't the only family member, unfortunately that passed away from, like, an illness. I had a couple of other family members pass away from cancer um, throughout my schooling, younger, even, like, high school, college. So that was very difficult, but it also kind of reinforced my feelings about going into a career in research or science. Um, And, you know, I also had other influences outside of that. For me, I just remember always wanting to, like, have some type of experiment book or an experiment kit growing up as a child. That's literally what I used to ask for for, like, Christmas or birthday gifts. Like, you know, people are asking for dolls and this and that. I'm like, ooh, can I get this cool science book or this science kit Um, or a telescope? So for me, those different, like, experiences and interests, even as a child, that made it a lot more obvious that science was definitely the field that I would go into. Um, And it brought me a lot of joy. Like, it wasn't just me saying it to do it. It was like this was something that I was really interested in, very passionate about. I've always been passionate about the sciences and the math. And it's even, you know, transcended even into high school. I started tutoring, um, like, elementary-aged students in the math and science as well, and I just pretty much kept tutoring since high school, honestly. And once you decided that STEM is what you wanted to pursue and you were on this trajectory to gain your Ph.D., what was the process in selecting your research for that? Or could you just tell us a little bit about the research that you did? Sure. So... The way that a lot of, it's pretty standard, a lot of graduate programs have it set up that once you enter the program, you know, they have a certain list of courses that you have to take within the first two years. Typically, the timing might differ a little bit, but one of the key experiences that each program um, should have set up for any student that enters a graduate program is something called rotations, and it's pretty much standard across the board where you rotate through different labs and you have the opportunity to learn the type of research that's happening in the lab. You can talk to the principal investigator or that's known as a PI 
You can speak to this person and find out, you know, how would you fit into this lab? What type of experiments would you possibly, what type of research would you possibly be involved in? You can speak about your own interests and see if your interests kind of match up with whatever research is happening. You can also meet um, other individuals who are in the lab and have a chance to speak to them and find out, you know, their experience in the lab, how they feel about the PI as well. So for me, that was something that I did in my program at Howard uh, during my first year. And I had a chance to locate a lab that I felt fit my interest best. And this is a lab where I was focused on the negative effects of HIV on a developing brain. So my study was focused on infancy-aged children through adolescence. So about, you know, if we were to consider it in human age, you know, the young, a young baby through a teenage, teenage um, age. So this is what my research was focused on during my graduate program. I didn't have to work with any, like, live animals. Um, I didn't work with humans. I actually worked with the brains of monkeys that had already, you know, been deceased. So this was a very interesting time for me because I had a chance to learn a lot of new techniques, increase, you know, the knowledge that I already had from the courses that I was taking in the program, but it's like it's different to be hands-on. It's, it's always one thing to sit in the classroom and hear the information, but it's another thing to, you know, actually get involved with your hands. So I definitely really enjoyed uh, my experience while I was in my graduate program. So being uh, hands-on is more so what you do now as a postdoctoral fellow, correct? So you, you continue yeah. to do research, um, and now you're working on research with hearing loss and how um, it impacts the brain. So could you tell us a little bit about that research and what you're looking into? Yeah. So it's interesting enough that all of my research from graduate school through my postdocs have always been like a neuro-based project, um, which is good because to me it just means that – the the brain is so complex, and there's so many things to learn about it, like countless. So for me, each opportunity I had was just like, oh, here's another set of information that I've learned. So currently, I'm learning how hearing loss can impact a specific place in the brain called the auditory cortex. And this is where the hearing is actually uh, processed. So whatever sound stimulation you're hearing, it's processed in this area of the brain. So I'm using different aged mice, and they're actually starting from as young as, like, seven days after birth, and I'm studying them up through adulthood, which for mice literally is, like, 30 days after birth. That's considered an adult mouse. So for me, a typical day in the lab, you know, I'm selecting whatever aged mouse that I need to, you know, conduct my experiment on. And then I get my material set up for the day. And, you know, there's a part of the, the experiment where the brain has to, you know, sit in a solution called artificial cerebral spinal fluid, which keeps the, the brain supplied with oxygen. And I'm able to, you know, maintain the neurons and cells that I'm studying. And, you know, once the brain is actually ready for my experiment, I place it on a piece of equipment, which is called the electrophysiology rig. And this has like 
several components to it, which include like a microscope. I'm using computer software, and I'm conducting my experiment and, uh, you know, getting data from this brain, which can usually take like four to five hours to collect. But the entire day for me is about like eight to nine hours. So that's how my current postdoc looks as a neurophysiologist studying hearing loss and the impact on the brain. And with these mice, you're just focusing on their progression of hearing through their age. So you don't expose them to some sort of stimulation or um, anything like that of hearing beforehand, right? It's just uh, comparing their age and their hearing ability. Yes. So I kind of gave like a bit of a more general um, description of what I'm studying. But yes, you're correct. I don't have any type of like simulation. Now there are like several, my lab's pretty big. So, you know, out of like 16 people, you have like at least half, if not more, that are using some type of stimulation. Um, a lot of times when you're, you know, have, you have a research project, it's typically something that someone else hasn't published already or someone else hasn't, you know, studied as yet. So for me, my project specifically, you know, I'm looking at specific layers of cells within the brain. So although overall in general, it sounds like, huh, I'm sure someone's already studied how hearing loss can affect the brain when you're, you know, getting older. Like mine is very targeted to a specific part of the brain. Um, But yeah, you know, a lot of times in research, you have one project and at the same time, you might have three like smaller sub projects going on, or you might have another idea that you come up with along the way that you can discuss with your PI and and say like, hey, you know, I think it'll be interesting to try this out. Or, you know, I did some research and I see that no one studied, you know, X, Y, or Z. Can I try that? And your project can expand onto something else. So, you know, if I were to stay in this postdoc for another year or so, more than likely, I would, you know, try introducing some type of stimulation to my project. I totally understand what you're saying. So for students at my high school, we have the opportunity to take a course called AP Capstone, where um, we're allowed to conduct our own research for about six months. Um, And our teachers continue to tell us, find the gap. And I guess that's kind of what you're alluding to, as in someone might have already researched something similar, but you just find that much more specialized component. Um, So that that absolutely makes so much sense. So on top of the research that you're doing with the mice, I I saw that you – did you do research with the fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? I did. I did. So – I've actually had two postdocs, so I'm currently in a second postdoc. Um, so after I graduated from Howard, which is where I got my PhD, I applied to receive funding from the NIH. So I was uh, awarded a supplement grant, a diversity supplement grant, actually, and I started my first postdoc at Children's Hospital in their neuroscience research center. So this is where I studied, once again, I was studying the brains of mice. Um, and it was another developmental study. So I'm looking at mice that were actually 
technically still in the womb of the mom. So this was like a really specialized, interesting uh, experiment. And I was looking at how when a so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder is basically when a mom is consuming alcohol while pregnant. So basically, I'm introducing alcohol to these mice. And no, it's not like, you know, drinking. Like, the mice aren't actually drinking it. I have to inject them with this. Um, but it's, like, all safe. They're, you know, put to sleep. They're not feeling it. Um, but then I was able to kind of model what it would look like for a human mother to drink. And then I'm able to study the brains of the the babies, which are called pups when you're talking about mice. And... It was very interesting because this project was actually very, like, molecular biology-based. So, I mean, I don't know if you guys have taken, like, genetics as yet in high school, but I loved genetics when I had a chance to take it in college, in undergrad. So it was really interesting to see how, you know, depending on the genotype of the mom and the genotype of the baby, like, the different impacts and effects that alcohol had on the brain. Like, it's very interesting. So I really, like, I've loved all of my projects, to be quite honest. They're all unique, very different. I'm, like I said, I'm still studying the brain, but it's like I had so many different options. You know, you can look at different diseases, different disorders. Like, the possibilities are seriously endless. So I'm really enjoying what I'm doing. And you were saying before your postdoctoral experience, you did not work with animals. So now that you've done so many projects with mice, do you do you like that better? Do you uh, wish you were back? <laughs> which which area do like what kind of um, experience or methodology do you like when applied to your research? That's a really good question, and I. And it's funny because I was, like, petrified during my first experience. So the, the postdoc, my first postdoc is where I, like, ever had to handle mice. And I was petrified for the longest time. Um, and when I say the longest time, it literally took me maybe, like, three months. So this postdoc was, like, a two-year postdoc. So for me, three months, it's, like, it's relatively short in the larger scheme, but it felt like forever. Um, but it was, like, it, it, it became okay. Like, I was okay with it. I was no longer petrified. What I would say is I can appreciate, I can appreciate what it means to use mice for your studies because, I mean, idealistically, you know, you're thinking like, huh, that's animal, like, cruelty almost. But think about it. Like, how do we get the answers that we need about a human brain if we're, you know, you're like, you don't want to experiment on human brains. Like, I'm not going to intentionally introduce, you know, HIV or fetal alcohol to a human, like, that's alive. So it's all, it's like, it's unfortunate, but at the same time, it's for the greater good when you're using these mice. Um, but I will say after, like, three years and change of using mice for my studies, um, compared to my experience in grad school where I just used, like, the brains didn't have to deal with animals at all, like live animals. I will say I think I preferred not working with the mice. That's just my preference. So so continuing on with your research and into the future, uh, 
do you have ideas or aspirations of things that you want to research or you're just taking them as they come? So here is one interesting thing that I did not mention earlier, which is during my undergraduate years, while I was, um, you know, going through my bachelor's program, every summer I interned. So I was an intern at Procter & Gamble, which is a consumer goods. Like they make a lot of products from, I mean, like NyQuil, DayQuil, Crest toothpaste, like herbal essence, hair wash, they make all types of products, right? So I was an intern within a department called Regulatory Affairs, which is basically, you know, a body of individuals who have, you know, direct access to the FDA, and they're able to pretty much say if whatever product you're trying to sell for people to use and consume, or even like animals, like animal food, pet food, does your product meet the requirements to be deemed safe? Like, can the FDA say, yes, this is safe? So I really enjoyed that that work that I did. Um, so there, so that when you talk like research or even dealing with animals, that was none of that. It was like a completely different aspect of the sciences. Um, but regulatory affairs can actually be found in like, you know, different, it's not just for science. It can be found like anywhere really. Um, but for me, after all of that experience I've had, I'm actually interested in getting back into regulatory affairs, but I want to specifically focus on like medical devices and, um, making sure that whatever company that I'm working for, their medical devices are deemed safe for the use of patients. So that kind of ties back into what I told you about earlier with my my passion. So for me, the various experience I've had, I just feel like personally the best fit right now is getting back into regulatory affairs and kind of leaving the research behind uh, behind me for a bit. And – that was such an influential internship experience that you experienced during your undergrad, and you said that you did it every year of your undergrad. Was there another um, internship that you think pushed you towards the similar trajectory, or were they kind of unrelated? Um, they were a little unrelated, so I definitely had other um, internships even shadowing. So like shadowing is like a quick, I mean, it could be a a very quick, a couple of hours. It could be a few days, but this is where, you know, you're pretty much just following or or following around whatever specialist or person that you're trying to see what their career looks like a day in the life. Um, So for me, I definitely did like a lot of shadowing. I shadowed a lot of medical doctors um, from different I studied, like, I followed a ear, nose, and throat doctor. I followed a, I want to say, um, GI specialist. You're looking at the, the gastrointestinal system and, you know, heartburn and reflux. So I definitely, and it's like all you have to do is ask. Like, I literally would just reach out, call up, and ask, like, hey, is it okay, you know, and, like, obviously for HIPAA safety reasons, you have to be a certain age, but this is, like, when I was in high school, I started doing this, even in in undergraduate, 
Um, so I definitely was able to like expose myself to different careers and kind of along the way be able to pick and choose like, yeah, I can actually see myself doing that or like, no, that's not a good fit for me. Um, and I know it's like trickier now because of coronavirus. A lot of places are definitely not going to be okay with that. Um, but that's where I say try your best to find like online resources. Um, and I know there are a few available and I can get into more detail if you like, but I definitely strongly suggest and advise everyone to try to like, you know, find your way to get as much like experience and information about different careers as you possibly can. And shadowing those physicians, doctors with mm-hmm. an MD, what changed your direction into wanting a PhD instead of an MD? What what was the difference for you? That's a good question. The difference for me, well, part of it was the fact that once I applied, because, you know, these schools are sometimes pretty tough to get into, like I literally applied to Howard's um, medical school program, even their physician assistance program, uh, and their PhD program. And I received like no's from the medical, the, the physician assistance was like a, we can let you in, but because of your prerequisite requirements, like you'd have to take over like a lot of courses. So you're kind of starting over. And then the PhD program, they accepted me. So uh, for me, it was kind of a timing thing and convenience. Um, but my initial plan actually was, okay, I start my, my PhD program and after like a year of taking courses, I'm going to transfer back into their MD program. And it's kind of crazy because even though with that being my plan, it was like, I really enjoyed my courses that I was taking in the PhD program you know, like I mentioned before, I did my, my rotation, so I found the HIV research lab. So that's honestly what changed my mind. Like, I, if you would have asked me in, in middle school, elementary school, it was like, yeah, I'm going to be a medical doctor. And then literally just from, like, one year of the Ph.D. program and seeing, you know, what type of possibilities I would have with this degree – it changed my mind and I was okay with that because I was still in the health sciences and I knew I could still find ultimately a career where I'm able to, you know, help patients. Okay. So now I'm going to completely change the topic and ask if you had the ability to sit down and have lunch and a conversation with one woman alive or not in STEM, who would that woman be? Uh, that is a really good question, and my answer would be Miss Henrietta Lacks, who was uh, an African American woman whose cancer cells are the source of a cell line called the HeLa cell line, which is the first immortalized human cell line, and it's one of the most important cell lines in medical research, um, specifically, you know, cancer research, which is something that based on my experiences with losing family members to different cancers, um, 
I feel like we would have a really good conversation and I could probably learn a lot from her and vice versa. Yeah, so my my high school for at least my graduating class, we had an assignment where we had to read the book about her life and her mm-hmm. contributions to science. So mm-hmm. um a lot mm-hmm. a lot of people who are listening should probably know who that exactly who that is. Nice. Very nice. Um, okay, so one thing that I know about Henrietta Lacks and many women before and after her have experienced adversity in their field of STEM. So were there any obstacles or did you notice an apparent gap between male and female roles in your education and career? Yes, 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 yes. So definitely I can say I just flash back to like my school, like younger schooling years, even as young as like elementary age. Um, I'm pretty sure you're all familiar with career day. I feel like everyone still like schools still, you know, have career days. And I can tell you from as young as I remember when different parents or speakers would come in to, uh, you know, speak to the kids, I can't even remember like there being an even number of women presenters that represented STEM. Like, definitely cannot say that. Um, and even up until, like, high school, high school career days, definitely don't recall seeing a lot of women that represent STEM uh, careers. And unfortunately, you asked if I had any experience personally. Definitely, I remember in high school specifically when I you know sometimes you you're having a conversation you know you're at you had a lunch with different people different family different friends and I remember there would be times where um older individuals which happened to be like men for the most part they weren't family members but uh you know family friends they would ask like oh so heather you're like in your high school years do you know what you want to do when you go to college like what do you want to be when you grow up and i would mention my interest in the sciences and there were a few individuals who specifically told me i should reconsider my career options simply for the fact that that area of of career interests that I have is mainly populated by men. And it was like a, I'm not sure you could be as successful in an area like that because of the fact that it's mostly men. Like you should probably consider another career where, you know, you have a better chance of being successful because there are more women in that area. And I remember being, you know, it, it was hurtful. It was saddening to hear people saying that when you're, you know, super excited about having a career in in health sciences. But, you know, even with that little bit of discouragement that I felt, like that sadness I felt, I brushed that off so quickly because for me, I already knew, like, this was my calling. Like, I already knew from young. So I pretty much, like, you know, I had my moment where I felt my feelings, but like I said, quickly moved on. And I almost, I can say I use that as motivation. Like, oh, you don't think I could be successful in the sciences because I'm a a female? Like, oh, well, check on me in, you know, the next X number of years and you'll see. So, you know, it's kind of like one of those 
I'm laughing last type of moments because here I am successful in the sciences as a woman. And so it, it can definitely be done for sure. Not only that, but I wanted to highlight. So I think all of the guests that we have had on this podcast thus far have been African-American women in STEM. Um, and I think that that is such a good representative and positive representative um, to showcase that the ability and perseverance and strength that all of you have had to um go through, you know, and, and so I think that on top of being a woman in STEM, being a person of color in STEM is another point of adversity um, and another point of diversity that needs to be expanded on in the STEM career. Yeah. Yes. I agree with you 1,000%. I couldn't have said it better. Yes. And I appreciate your encouraging words. Of course. So um, just Kind of as we round it out, is there any type of advice that you would have for uh, young people, specifically women, girls, that are interested in your fields and STEM in general? Yep. I would say, based on my experience, like personally, and what I've just, you know, observed from others, I would say... Find something that you are passionate about. And it can be, you know, we say STEM. It could be, you know, outside of that. But if we're, if I'm going to keep it more focused on STEM, you know, there's the four acronyms that stand for different things. But it's okay if you're passionate about the X and the M or the T and the E. Like, it's okay. Don't feel like you have to limit yourself or box yourself in to, to one thing. I, I mentioned earlier that I'm very passionate about the math and sciences, even though, like, none of my current roles have been heavily math-based. I found other, way around, other ways around that, which include, you know, tutoring. Like, I've been tutoring literally from the time that I started my graduate program, so, and then specifically mainly in math. So it's like you can find a career, you can you can find something that you can still pull in your passions. So don't limit yourself. Find something you're passionate about. Also try to access as much information as you can about your interests. Um, your interests can change. It's okay. Like I mentioned before, I thought I would be going to medical school. Like I definitely thought I was going to be a pediatric surgeon. That's what I thought. And I'm not that. And I'm okay with that. I'm okay with the career that I have. I'm okay with the fact that I'm actually still looking to get back into something that I'm passionate about, which I mentioned before was regulatory affairs for medical devices. Like, it's okay. Don't be discouraged if, you know, your your peers or you guys are the same age and they're doing X, Y, Z and they've been in their career now for five years and you're like, well, I'm still trying to figure it out. It's whatever makes you happy, and everyone has their own path. Everyone's path does not look the same. So to me, there's like a quote that's like, comparison is the thief of joy. Try not to compare yourself. I feel like um, you can definitely, you know, get caught up if you start doing that. Also, I mentioned before, you know, trying to take opportunities to get a lot of hands-on experience. I know that's tough now, but if, you know, things change with 
you know, how the world's going with the pandemic, definitely the shadowing. It can even be a virtual shadowing if possible. You know, people carry around phones, you know, with them where you can FaceTime or Zoom or whatever platform. There are a lot of online resources. Even if you're someone that you're like, I'm not completely sure which direction I want to go into for my career. Um, there are sources such as, like, myplan.com, iSeek. Like, you can just Google it, literally. Like, free online resources to find my passion or what career would be a good fit for me. Um, so it's okay if you, you don't have the answer right now when someone says, what do you want to be when you grow up? Um, but, yeah, definitely try to stay encouraged. There are a lot of obstacles. That will come your way. That's just how life is. But if you are determined, you know, try to have a really good support system, a strong network of individuals uh, that, that know what your interests are, then I personally believe that your possibilities are endless. So that's what I would say. Well, thank you so much, Heather, for joining us and giving your time to give your wisdom and experience to us and paving the way for women in STEM. So thank you. Yeah, you're very welcome. I'm really uh, honored that you asked me to be a part of this and share my experiences. I love talking about my experience and hope that, you know, someone can connect with it and, and be inspired. Like that's really what I want to do. I really love to see, the next generation of young women because we are like really underrepresented in STEM anyways. But I definitely love the fact that, you know, you have this program where you're trying to encourage and educate and inspire young girls to follow a career in STEM. So I really applaud you once again. Thank you. And um, I, so I, I so enjoyed this interview. Um, some, pe- some people that are in STEM, sometimes talking to them uh, can be a little bit more difficult than it was here. But uh, you had, <laughs> I know, I had, <laughs> I, I had to like put myself on mute sometimes because I was like started laughing so hard. <laughs> I was, I was like, I don't want this to be recorded. <laughs> I just kept laughing. So it it is yeah, it has been such a good time. Yes, Thank no, you. it's been such a good time. So other than that, that's all I have. Awesome. All well, right. Thank you. Yeah, this was fun. I really appreciated this, Laura Kate. Yes, it was it was such a good experience for me. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Take care. Yes, you too. Thanks. Bye bye. Bye bye.